thank you for reading that really powerful scripture. And um, I do have to admit that I've been a pastor for a long time. So when I read this text for this Sunday, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was thinking, I've preached on this thing so many times. How do I have something fresh and new to hear that I can share with the congregation? God came through. Because what, what I was reminded of, first of all, is that we live in a day of glory. I mean, this has been a glory week for Scottsdale this past week, has it not? I mean, to have the Phoenix Open, to have the Super Bowl. I mean, think of all the dazzling glitter that was thrown around over the last week or so. And so when we think about glory, we get that. Because we are glory people. And we support, well, some glory teams. <laughs> some teams have still not quite gotten to their glory yet. And so when we talk about Transfiguration Sunday, transfigured is a strange word. It's not a word that we use real often. It's often translated in the context of a spiritual nature. The Oxford Dictionary says this, transfigure is a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. Jesus was transfigured. He was changed into an even more beautiful state. Alex got his hair cut. And I thought, I thought, wow, he has been transfigured. <laughs> so this, this word is a word that doesn't just talk about your beauty, but also about your spiritual state. And so when Jesus is transfigured, he's not just more beautiful to the eye, but he is more beautiful spiritually as well. Jesus was transfigured. It says his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became, well, depending on the translation, dazzling white. That's where I get the glitter. My granddaughters love to play with glitter. And it's dazzling to the eyes when you see that glitter. Dazzling white. White as light. So it's interesting that we find this one other time in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to begin at verse 28 and uh, read through verse 30. But this is where Moses has received the law, the, the Ten Commandments from God upon the mount. And this is what it says in verse 28. Moses remained there on the mountain with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. In all that time he ate no bread and drank no water. And the Lord wrote the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on the stone tablets. Now when Moses came down Mount Sinai, carrying the law 
stone, the two, tones, uh, two stone tablets. Two stone tablets. Say that real fast three times. Inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware that his face had become radiant, dazzling white, because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. So that's the other reference to where a face shines bright. Next Sunday, we take a look at Jesus' journey into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food, without water. Where do we get that one from, right? Moses had done that as well. So, when we think about this transfiguration, then we're reminded that Jesus, who was born of Mary, who is a human being, is transfigured into a heavenly being and stands there with, of all people, Moses and Elijah. Moses Elijah and Jesus talking amongst one another. Matthew doesn't tell us what they were talking about. If you jump over to Luke's gospel, Luke will tell you that they're talking about his death. But Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew just tells us that they were talking. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, Remember, Elijah went to heaven on a chariot without dying, just taken up. But we know that Moses died. And so it's interesting that these two figures, one who had died, one who never died but went to heaven, that these two figures are the ones that appear with Jesus. You see, Moses was known as the prophet that gave the law, the lawgiver. And that law, that Torah, in our Hebrew scriptures, in our Old Testament, that Torah is the crux of the Hebrew faith. And so what Moses gave the people of Israel was life. This is how you're going to live. And this is the life that you're going to be able to live because God has given you, through me, this law, the Torah. Elijah was known as the greatest of great prophets. I mean, there's a lot of prophets, right? The majors, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, do you remember them? And, and then we also have the minor prophets, Habakkuk, Amos. We also know that, that of all the prophets, the prophet that stands above all the others is Elijah. So if you were to encapsulate the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, in terms of two identities, you couldn't choose more prominent, important identities for the Hebrew scriptures of Moses and Elijah. And then Jesus. I'm going to jump ahead and then we're going to go back. 
because it's after the disciples have fallen to the ground. It's after that that they look up and they see, it says, only Jesus. Only Jesus. Why is it only Jesus? What happened to Moses and Elijah? Well, the focus is on the one, not the ones who came to give the law, but the focus is on the one who came to fulfill the law. So if there's one important teaching point for us to learn from this scripture text today, it is that, that Jesus came to fulfill, to complete the law which God had given through Elijah in its preparation and through Moses in the actual giving. Jesus is the fulfillment. That's why he's alone. Jesus came to fulfill what God had started with Elijah and Moses. Jesus is the Messiah who has come to bring the restoration of Israel. Alex was telling us that earlier, that Jesus, that Jesus is the restorer, that he came to restore all of Israel. But not just Israel, he came to restore the whole world. Now, could we use some restoration in our world today? So Jesus came to begin that process of restoring the world. Yet, it is at this very moment of glory that the disciples meet this moment of glory with fear and trepidation. They are deeply afraid. And with good reason, probably. Uh, Matthew uses this Greek word, edu. Uh, those of you who studied Greek, I know there's a few, in, a few of you in here. Um, that word means, well, if you go back to our King James Version, to the Revised Standard Version, it was always translated, behold. Do you remember that word, those of us who are older? Do you remember some of those other translations? Behold. Now it gets translated, look. Not quite the same. Look. <laughs> um, I know it's old-fashioned, but I still kind of like behold better. But three times Matthew uses this word. And one of the things that's interesting about this word is that it's a sign. This word God uses rarely. But when God uses that word, it's kind of like, all right, let's pay attention, because what's going to come after this word is really important. So three times we hear this word behold used. The first time, it's when the two heavenly figures, the two heavenly visitors, join Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Behold, Moses and Elijah stood there in that radiance with Jesus as his face shone, as his clothes were dazzling white. 
behold, he wasn't alone. Moses and Elijah were with him. The second time that we hear this word used is when it's announced that there was a bright cloud. Now, I didn't like the translation here because it says the bright cloud overshadowed them. If it's a bright cloud, it's not casting a shadow, is it? I mean, this isn't a Puxtahani Phil thing. Uh, what I'm saying is that, that if it's a bright cloud, it's, it's showing brightness. It's not showing shade. And so this bright cloud overhangs them. That's the second behold. The third behold or look is when we hear a voice that comes from the cloud. This is my beloved son whom I dearly love. Listen to him. Whose voice is that? This is my son. The voice belongs to the Father, to God. So when we hear that announcement, that's the third behold. So, boy, I'm, that's kind of cool. I hear myself. <laughs> so so when, when Matthew is writing this report to us of Jesus' transfiguration, what he's sharing with us is the importance of that transfiguration. Let's look at it here. These beholds or these looks remind us of the power of God in conveying this message of glory. Sometimes when we receive a glimpse of the glory of God, we are overwhelmed by the sheer power of it. Have you ever been like that? I mean, it's like it's almost too much. Peter, James, and John, they were overwhelmed by it. It says that they fell down on their faces and they were filled with fear. They fell down on their faces. They fell literally prostrate. It was a prostration. Do you know what that form is? I was going to demonstrate it here for you, but then I'd go off the camera. But all right, Alex is going to come up and So, fall down on your face. Let's make sure one of the youth kids do it, too. All right, come on up here, Landon. Just do exactly what I'm going to do, okay? <laughs> do that. Do that. Except, um, Landon, I want you to be on your knees when you do it, okay? Yep, and now face down on your knees. Stay up on your knees. Okay, face down. All the way, all the way down. No, keep your, keep your butt up. <laughs> all right, your head all the way down. Yes, now your head down. See, see, do that again, Alex. All the way down. Why is that important? My hair didn't even... This is important because he has lowered his brain below his heart. 
That's what he, you lowered your brain. You lowered your brain below your heart. You elevated your heart above your brain. That's what it means to lie prostrate. It's when we find ourselves completely devoted to God, overwhelmed by the power and the presence of God, but completely devoted to God. They are being humble. They are being obedient. They are demonstrating their humility. They do that to the one to whom they bow. And so they have heard God's voice proclaim who Jesus is. And in Matthew's gospel, it is only Jesus and John the Baptist who hear those same words at his baptism. This is my son whom I dearly love. Listen to him. The disciples hadn't heard it yet in Matthew. In Luke, yeah, but not in Matthew. This is the first time the disciples hear the voice of God. And this is why they're bowing down to Jesus. Now, they, now they've heard the voice of God, and it is a, a fearful and awesome thing. So that's the big question, you know, because that word in Greek can be translated to be afraid or to have a sense of awe about God. And, and so a lot of the translations have translated it, including the one we did this morning, that the, uh, a sense of awe, that they were, they were awe-filled. The problem with that particular translation is that Jesus comes up to them and says, do not be afraid. So they weren't filled with awe in the presence of God. They were afraid. They were fearing because they knew who they were in the presence of God. This part of the story, I think, is one of the most hopeful things that is written in the Bible. It says that Jesus came over and touched them. And then he said, get up. Do not be afraid. When you are afraid, these words and these actions are perhaps the most important things that you can experience, especially from Jesus. Not only did he share these comforting words, he also touched them. I think we can all agree about the power of appropriate touch. Jesus uses that power here with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, as he reaches out and he touches each one of them. And then he tells them, because he loves them, do not be afraid. Because he loves them, he tells them, 
Do not be afraid. If Jesus loved, if Jesus didn't love them, would he have said that to them? No, he would have said, keep on your knees and keep being afraid of me. But that's not what he said. He said, do not be afraid. Implied, because I love you. That is good news. Whenever you experience fear, know that Jesus is ready to touch you and to proclaim to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you do not need to be afraid. Jesus wants to reassure you that he loves you, that God loves you. In Isaiah 41, it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. And then in Isaiah 43, it says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And in Mark 5, when Jairus' daughter has died, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. This brings us to the point of God's glory. Where, where you get that really unusual sermon title from me today. Strange glory. It's a phrase that I came across in reading a couple of books and it captured my attention because I think it really is a really apt description of this transfiguration. This glory that we are celebrating today with Jesus is not an ordinary glory. It's not the glory of a Super Bowl ring. It's not the glory of the winnings of a Phoenix Open. It's not the glory of being recognized as the most prominent celebrity. It's a glory that is different because it is a strange kind of glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used this phrase in a sermon that he preached in London in 1933. Hitler had just been elected as chancellor of Germany. Bonhoeffer had taken a call to serve two small congregations in London. In his first sermon, he used this description, strange glory. This is how he used it. The strange glory, he said, is grounded in Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer said that Jesus is calling the church to repent. This was at a time when the church had become in alignment with the powers and the structures of power in the world. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that it was time for the church to be the church of Jesus, not the church of the culture, not the church of the world, but to be the church of Jesus. And he said, this is a strange kind of glory because it is calling the church to repent. Interestingly, when I was reading this sermon again this week, 
I was reminded that next Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's a day that we come together to begin our, our celebration of Lent, where we receive the ashes, the imposition of ashes, where we hear the call to repent individually. But what Bonhoeffer was saying is that the church also needs to repent. This is how he described it. Turn back! Turn back! Where? Turn back to the everlasting mercy of God who never leaves us, whose heart breaks because of us. In preaching, God asks something of the church that is both strange and astonishing. Bonhoeffer said, what the church is asked to do is to be reconciled to God, to receive God's kingdom, to take heaven as a gift. And then this is how he concluded the sermon. His, God's, glory is a strange glory. This glory of God who comes to us as one who is poor in order to win our hearts. This glory is a strange glory because it calls us to repent. Turn back away from the things, the bright lights that attract us in the world, to turn back to the comfort of Jesus who never leaves us, but instead touches us with love and who will demonstrate his deep love for us as he comes down from that mountain where he has been transfigured. You see, God's glory, Jesus' glory, is strange. Not because of its appearance, but because it does not remain upon the mountaintop. Instead, Jesus, in all of his glory, comes down the mountain and touches humanity at its deepest points of sin and pain and sorrow and loss. It comes down to take up the cross that is the public symbol for shame and rejection. This glory of Jesus comes down and touches the untouchable parts of our society and then touches even the most untouchable parts of our lives. Jesus has come down to touch you, to reassure you, to tell you that you do not need to fear any longer because Jesus and his Father love you. Yes, 
you. Now that is a strange kind of glory. Amen.